I'm Becca Campbell, your pediatric sleep consultant. Welcome to the Little Z Sleep Podcast, where we make getting sleep help easy. If you have ever scrolled on social media, you likely feel like parenting is anything but easy. You see great information peppered with information that seems kind of questionable. You see some posts that make you feel guilty for what you served for snack that day. You come across a sponsored post from someone who's talking about how you should always respond to your child's underlying needs no matter what time of day and no matter how it makes you feel. Or perhaps you've been just inundated by infographics. You know, I shared this way back in January after an Instagram hiatus that I felt like I was creating infographics and information for people, but I myself felt just in a pile of information that I was trying to sort my way out of every time I came onto Instagram. Today, I have invited back to the podcast my favorite collaborators here on our podcast. They have definitely been the um, most comeback guest, if that's what you want to say, um, helping families thrive. This time I'm joined by Jenna Elgin, and we are talking about a very touchy and very trendy topic, and that is positive parenting. In fact, the title of this episode is What is Positive Parenting and What Does the Research Say? And so in this episode, Jenna sat with me and we went through it all. We talked about parenting perspectives, parenting styles versus what the research said. We talk about what your filter should be as you find posts and for me, this was an encouraging episode, especially while I'm once again on an Instagram hiatus, taking a break to step back because as a business owner, it's overwhelming. And as a parent, it can be confusing. And this is a time that I like to just step away, really focus on my family and focus on my real life. I love getting guests together I love having these connections in our business while I'm away from Instagram because it reminds me that my business is not just Instagram. It's all across the world on platforms like the podcast and our YouTube channel and our sleep courses. And so I am grateful for every single one of the listeners here. And I just wanted to pause and reflect on that, that while Jenna and I talk a lot about social media, I am grateful and thankful for all of the other ways that you can connect with us here at Little Z's. So I am thrilled to have Dr. Jenna Elgin on the podcast. She is a psychologist and co-owner over at Helping Families Thrive. Let's get into this episode. I know you're going to love it. Welcome back, Jenna, to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. We're going to talk about more of these hot topics that are very much misunderstood across the social media world. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat today. So what is the big misunderstanding hot topic parenting trend that we're going to talk about today? I would like to talk about just kind of some of the trends that I'm seeing on social media in terms of um, parenting experts and some of the recommendations that particularly around, you know, gentle parenting, what is gentle parenting, um, conscious parenting, some of these buzzwords that we might be hearing and how those relate to what the research so shows and I kind of dive in a bit about the difference between what we see on social media and what we know from the research. Yeah. The buzzword of gentle parenting, positive parenting, like if there's not already enough that like makes you feel guilty when you're scrolling social media, then you're like, wait a minute. 
am I not gentle? Like, right, <laughs> am I right, not? Because the opposite of gentle parenting is like ungentle, and no one <laughs> wants to not be gentle. So it, you know, just even from the names, sometimes it can elicit a lot of anxiety for us as parents. Hey, I wanted to pause this podcast real quick and ask you a little tiny favor. Could you scroll down and wherever you are listening and leave us a rating and review? Hint, hint, wink, wink. It's super easy. Just tap the five stars and tell us what you think of this podcast so we can continue to be here every week and serve up amazing episodes just like this. Your review and your rating really helps the reach and helps other people find that sleep help. Oh my gosh, it's easy and it's right here. I would appreciate that if you could take a moment. All right, let's get back to the episode. One of our, we were talking about it before we started on this conversation. The one of the best episodes on the entire podcast of Little Z's is the attachment podcast that you shared with us. And I'll link it in the notes. But similarly, with gentle sleep or gentle sleep training, that is such a misunderstood term. And I find, and I'm, I'm assuming it's the same with like maybe gentle parenting, is that people are like, oh, well, yes, I want to do gentle sleep. I wouldn't want to be rough and horrible and cruel. Right. <laughs> it's like, okay, yes. that's not what that means. So can you explain to us what the parenting styles, like parenting styles versus parenting philosophies? What are we talking yes, about? Yes, absolutely. Here? So when we say a parenting philosophy, that's going to be something where it's a belief that somebody has. And there may be some, it may be uh, based on some research, but it's generally a an approach to parenting um, based on a set of beliefs. So these are going to be things like attachment parenting, uh, conscious parenting, and we would actually put gentle parenting into that bucket as well. So these are a parenting philosophies, and these are different from what we know from the research, which are parenting styles. And these come from decades of work looking at different parenting behaviors. And in the research, those are actually categorized a little bit differently. Uh, we have, if you can kind of imagine a grid where you have uh, warmth on one side of it and control or limit setting on the other side, those are kind of the two dimensions of parenting that we look at in the research a lot of times to create these parenting styles. So if a parent has high levels of warmth, um, high connection with their child, and high levels of boundaries with their child, this is kind of the ideal parenting style. And this is called authoritative parenting. Um, and so if you have high warmth, but low boundaries, this is actually what we call permissive parenting. And this can kind of be where sometimes some social media recommendations may actually fall into this category here. Um, and then if we have high boundaries, high limit setting, but low warmth, that's kind of more of our old school authoritarian parenting. Um, and then if we have low warmth and low boundaries, that's more neglectful. And that's generally because of a lot of environmental circumstances that a family would, would fall into that category. So the other three are more kind of what, what are more commonly explored in the research. Um, and I can already research. think of examples of people like, you know, like, oh yes, I see that person and that person. Like you can already think of examples. Of Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's important to say that, that none of us are going to be like, I am always authoritative in every interaction, right? There, we all are going to uh, you know, I, I think of it as so these two categories are warmth and boundaries that we want in our parenting. And you can think of it as a seesaw with warmth and boundaries on both sides. Right. And we're the parent in the middle uh, trying to balance this. And it doesn't necessarily need to be equal warmth and equal boundaries. Right. But 
there's going to be days where I'm like, man, my, I was way over here in the boundaries today. I was, I was too harsh. I was too controlling. I need to scooch over a bit and up my warmth tomorrow. I'm going to really focus on connection with my kiddo tomorrow. And there's going to be days where it's like, oh man, I, I gave into that tantrum and let them watch an extra show. And I, you know, I let them have more snacks just because they were whining for them. Maybe my boundaries were a little loosey goosey today, but my warmth was super high. My kids were happy. Right. So we're all, we're all kind of doing the scooching. Right. And so it's like most of the time, where are we? And that's where we would identify our parenting styles. So again, these are different than those philosophies. Now, the philosophies aren't bad or good. They're, they're, you know, they can be helpful for people to feel we all want like um, to feel like we're part of a group, right? I think that's kind of human nature. And so it's easy for people when they have rules about what they're supposed to do. And that's where these parenting philosophies kind of come in. And as long as those parenting philosophies are in line with this warmth and boundaries, which sometimes they really are, right? They gentle parenting, a lot of times you'll see them and they talk about limit setting and how important that is. So in and of itself, that's not a bad thing, as long as it's combining these two things, warmth and boundaries. I think where we run into some challenges are when we say, this is exactly how you must set boundaries or you will damage your child. When that is not necessarily, I think parents have a bit more flexibility than they realize from the research, right? Um, and that doesn't mean everything goes. I mean, we know that there are things that are not helpful for kids, right? We'll just name these. We know that physical discipline is not, not great for kids. Um, that old school, really firm parenting approach with low levels of warmth, that doesn't have the best outcomes for kids. Chronic yelling, right? I mean, we've all yelled at our kids, right? But chronic yelling, you know, those are things that that the research shows are not optimal. But Within limit setting, I think we there's a lot of finger pointing on social media about exactly how parents need to be setting limits, whether that's related to sleep, whether that's related to tantrums, whether that's related to feeding. Um, and that, I think, is is causing some anxiety for families. So when you hear the term and you're scrolling around social media and it says like positive parenting tip for blah, 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 like what should be, as we're hearing you talk about the seesaw and which I relate to 120%. Sometimes I even think the seesaw is like one kid is here and one kid is there. And then the next day I switch them, you know, it's like that seesaw balance is so true. But when you're doing the scroll and you're looking at everything and you see like positive parenting buzzword come through and limit setting and boundary setting, like what are some things that we need to know about how these trends align with what research says? Absolutely. So, I mean, research, well, let's just talk about what the research-based definition of positive parenting is. So positive parenting is actually, out of some of those kind of philosophies, there is a research-based positive parenting um, approach. And this is, but it, but again, it's a little bit looser than, than what parents might realize. So a research-based positive parenting is one in which the parent-child relationship includes responsive caring, Uh, leading with boundaries and discipline, providing a safe environment, and providing developmentally appropriate opportunities for learning. Okay? Another definition is um, uh, the parent-child relationship that is responsive to a child's needs and feelings and combines warmth and thoughtful, firm limit setting in a consistent manner. 
Sounds great. Sounds wonderful. Sounds great. Yeah. Right. So when we're scrolling through social media and we see things, I think those are kind of the definitions that we want to be be looking at. But how is this recommendation being portrayed, I think is important, right? So sometimes we'll see things like, uh, you know, consequences are, are damaging. Okay. Well, no, I mean, I mean, that that's not been shown in the research. We do know that there are helpful ways to deliver consequences for kids and unhelpful ways. And that's a better conversation than some of these blanket flashy statements of, you know, timeout is harmful. Consequences, you know, you shouldn't need consequences. You should just connect. And um, and then that's going to solve your problem, right? So I think that we just need more nuance. And so if you're seeing a recommendation that feels like it might be lacking that nuance, or it doesn't feel in line with how you parent, I think it's okay to take a step back and say, am I doing these basic things of positive parenting, which is having high warmth, opportunities for learning, setting limits, I can kind of release a little bit of that anxiety around doing it exactly like this one influencer said I should do it. Oh my gosh, yes. And I want to kind of touch on the consequence and just really the the first thing that came into my head was like a tangible example that we teach at Little Z's about the stuffed animal and the child throwing the stuffed animal out of the crib right? And like the limit setting with that. And this may be yep. going in a completely different direction. So you just be like... No, I think it's actually perfect. Okay. Perfect example. Yes. <laughs> okay. So this is something that happens all the time. You know, the child learns that they can... Maybe on accident, they learn that if they toss the buddy or toss the, the bunny outside the crib, that the parent will come in and pick up the bunny. And maybe the first time the parent leans over and like, oh, you dropped your bunny. Let me give you a hug and a squeeze. I love you so much. <laughs> give him the bunny and then leave the room. And that kid is like, smart. And, oh, right. so that I works. throw the bunny. You come back in. <laughs> yes. And it becomes... From one, maybe two times of like, oh, sweet, sweet little Rose, you dropped your bunny. Let me come help you to like, oh my gosh, stop dropping your bunny. And it's, it's frustrating. And parents don't know when to like the, the boundary, like when is the boundary of like, oh, let me help you. But like, also let me teach you that this, there has to, there's an end to this, right? Because toddlers. And I think there's a few, you know, as you say that, where is this boundary? And and I I can't say exactly when they've thrown the bunny two and a half times, that's the time to set the boundaries because it isn't that, um, that's not quite the right question. The things to think about here are one is setting the difference between a want and a need. And I think that gets really misconstrued on social media, right? Um, I need to meet my child's needs at all times. Well, yes, we need to meet our kids' needs, but our kids' needs and wants are not interchangeable, right? Like just because my child wants something, they want a snack 10 minutes after lunch, doesn't mean I need to give them that snack 10 minutes after lunch. That's a that's a want, right? And I think that that can get really misconstrued in the way that the influencers um, talk about things because they use the words, you must, you know, we need to be meeting our kids' needs. And if our kids are crying, then we're not meeting their needs. And that, that comes to the second point, which is distress and is distress and is stress bad for kids. And we know that, that stress is not all or nothing. Um, and this is actually really important that, um, 
yes, we want to avoid chronic, prolonged, ongoing stress. We do know that from the research. But we also know from the research that our ability to handle stress, our emotion regulation abilities, our stress regulation can only develop if we have developmentally appropriate opportunities to experience stress and come down from that in in our environment. So stress is not all bad. And I think parents are so, because of what they're reading and seeing, they feel like any distress that my child experiences, I must, I must stop that right away and meet their needs. Their quote unquote. Because then needs. I'm not a positive parent. If then I, I'm not yeah. a gentle parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, there, there are ways that we can do this in a way that's going to be more emotionally um, helpful for our kids versus not, right? We can deliver boundaries with empathy. But if your child throws the stuffy, it's okay to say, you know, if stuffy comes out again, depending on the child's age, right? Mm-hmm. Then stuffy's going to, then I'm going to take stuffy with me or yep. then stuffy's going to go away. And your child might not like that. And I think that's the problem that we see is that parents don't set the limit. They're like, oh, I must meet their need. I must meet their need. And then they're exhausted and angry. And then they end up doing the very things that they don't want to do. They end up exploding. They end up yelling and screaming because they're so frustrated because they brought stuffy back 10 times. And if they had set the boundary at the second throw, that yes, their child might have been really, really distressed, but the next night, the kiddo, or you know, two or three nights later, the kiddo's now holding on to the stuffy. Man, yes, we had a rough, you know, a tantrum and we had to get through that, but we're now in a much better place than weeks and weeks of 10 stuffies and 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 the parents exploding. Yes. Okay. This literally this morning, we had a mom in the sleep society share. Uh, a win. She's one week into our sleep program. And she said, I love this at the very end. She was like, I thought I was doing the right thing for my child by just constantly always being there. She said she was rocking to sleep all night long, um, nursing him all night long. She never left his rocker. Like she just stayed in the rocker all night long. She was like, I thought that was what I was supposed to do, even though like it was miserable. And she was like, I realized I didn't, I didn't think my baby was capable of anything different. And I think with like the stuffy being thrown out, that's mm-hmm. just kind of struck me for like the older kids. We, what you just said is what we say in our, our preschool program for three to three years, five years old and up is that they have to know those limits. And it does like really, really suck when you have to hold that boundary. But yeah. then you realize like that the child is capable, like they're capable of hearing you and listening and and knowing that like, oh, you really do mean that, you yeah. know? And I think sometimes we try to make it easier because we think, again, permissing, if I'm being, if it's permissible, then they're happy, right? But yeah. who's, who's really happy? Right. Because, and, and, you know, I think this, the part that's so powerful is when I look at the research on this, this is across disciplines in, in parenting. So this idea of, of needing firm limits and pairing that with, with high levels of empathy and warmth. So when we look at um, feeding, uh, you know, feeding our kids, we know that having a permissive approach where our kids are allowed to, and again, as I say, these examples, we've all done probably all the quote unquote wrong things yes. here, right? Okay. So yes. we're, when any of these examples I'm giving, I'm thinking about kind of most of the time how we're doing things. Okay. Um, but with feeding, so like, you know, a really permissive approach where kids can get their food whenever they want, 
they're, you know, they're allowed to kind of have whatever they want at meals. The parents might make a, you know, a second dinner for them if they don't want their dinner. Um, we know that that can lead to longer term feeding challenges, maybe more picky eating, that kind of stuff. And we also know that really controlling feeding practices where we're being so firm with our limits, where we're saying, you must try a bite, you must finish your plate, uh, you, you know, serving meals where there's no preferred foods for the child, that that can also increase picky eating and feeding problems. And so what we're looking for is this balanced approach of, okay, I choose the foods at the mealtime, being thoughtful about what my child likes, making sure there's at least one food that I know that they they will eat. I'm serving the meals at a in a on a general time frame of you know every couple of hours, and then the kitchen is closed in between those times. In general, right? There's always some flexibility with this, and, but then I'm not forcing them to eat those foods. I'm just providing them to them, and I'm allowing them to choose within these these limits that I've set, right? So there's the warmth and the boundaries and that leads to optimal outcomes with feeding for kids. And there's gonna be so much individual differences between kids. And I think that's so important for parents to hear because I have three very different kids and I have done the same, the feeding approach that I just just said is kind of the most common evidence-based approach to feeding where the parent chooses the foods and the schedule, but the child gets to choose how much they eat and if they eat, okay? I've done that same approach with my three children (laughs) and I have two fairly adventurous eaters and I have one child who is the definition of picky. And I bet you can guess which child. (laughs) I'm going to guess it's maybe the middle one, if I can. (laughs) The middle one, yes. Um, And and so we're always going to have individual differences. It's not going to mean that I have this perfect, this child that's eating sushi and and trying foods, uh, you know, the first time they see them and they never complain about what I serve. And I mean, they never ask for snacks in between. I mean, not at all. They're still going to be kids and they're still going to have developmentally appropriate behaviors. And I have to have realistic expectations while doing that. And I might, you know, with my pickier eater, I have to be a lot more thoughtful. I do. I have to, I, I have to kind of get more resources. I have to put more tools in my toolbox for that, for that kiddo, because the kind of the general approach of warmth and boundaries, which works for my other two kids, isn't quite enough. I have to just be a little bit more rigid in my approach. Rigid meaning I'm more thoughtful about my warmth and I'm more thoughtful about my boundaries because I know that it's trickier for her. Um, And the same might go for sleep, right? Where, as you know, I have very different kids when it comes to sleep. And for two of them, probably a variety of sleep approaches probably would have worked fairly well for them. And one of them, I needed a really specific approach with high levels of warmth and high levels of boundaries because it was a lot trickier. Um, And the same goes for anxiety. We need warmth and boundaries. When we push kids to face their fears without any warmth, that backfires. But when we allow kids to avoid all of their fears and feared situations. And we kind of turn them away from anything that's scary. We actually know that that leads to more anxiety. So across disciplines in child development, we have to have both of these components. And I think that some of our recommendations on Instagram are often missing our boundary piece or being very prescriptive about how parents can and should set boundaries that kind of miss a lot of the the nuance that's really there from the research. 
Yes. So I want to kind of lean into that a little bit. I love that you mentioned like tools in your toolbox and the Instagram world, because sometimes that's where we get our tools is like, oh, well, I saw this person shared this tactic. I'm going to try that. Or, you know, this person said, I think let's, we could go the positive way. Like, oh, they said that this picky eating strategy worked. I'm going to try that. Let's just pick that tool out or let's go the negative way. And like, oh, this person is shaming me and how I, how I do things. Oh, I guess I should take that out of my tool belt. Right. So what are some of these cautionary buzzwords that you feel like we need to be on the lookout for? Yeah. I mean, anything, honestly, and this is like one that's hard as because the mission at helping families thrive is to share uh, research information, parenting research to the everyday parent. But honestly, I think one of the things to be cautious of are, um, you know, when people say research says, make sure that there is some level of citation or that they're open to sharing some actual studies if if you're kind of questioning what what they're sharing. But in terms of buzzwords, anything that kind of there's this phenomenon called neurobabble. Um, and I actually want to read exactly how it's defined in this uh, research article because I found this really powerful. Um, so uh, neurobabble is the phenomenon whereby neuroscientific explanations of behavior are more persuasive simply because they sound more technical and authoritative. Several studies have shown that adding irrelevant neuroscience information increases the perceived quality of psychological explanations. For example, including images of the brain makes bad explanations sound more authoritative and believable. Oh my gosh, I can think of countless examples where I have seen that be the case. <laughs> yes. So um, I think that that is so, but the brain is is so powerful, right? And, and we talk actually talk about brain development in our toddler course. So it's not that we don't want to understand brain development, but it's how it's being used in marketing and the claims, which are often when you go, in, and this is where the lay parent doesn't often have the ability to do this, to actually go back to the original source of what this person is claiming and read the study often because the studies aren't even accessible to most of us. Like you have to pay for them and, you know, that's a whole nother topic. Um, But yeah, I would just, if someone's trying to sell you something and there's lots of claims that involve neuroscience shows or this brain-based program just be aware that sometimes these claims can be misleading. It's important that we are zooming out and looking at what what is the real recommendation here? Does this is this in line with that research-based positive parenting uh, definition, or is this just someone's preference? Because those are two different things. That can be their preference, and that can be great. I mean, they can they can do that, but that's different than saying it's harmful to do it differently. Right. Which is why it's so important to have these conversations because, you know, it's the same. That's, that's great. If there is a a sleep account out there who is all for the opposite of what I teach, you know, that's great. You can do it. It's a free world. You can totally do that. That is wonderful. But definitely as the consumer, you have to be careful that they're, um, you're reading these things with the lens of that's preference, not based upon evidence research, right? like there's yep. there's a difference. And, and do I, I read this and feel empowered or do I read this and feel fearful? 
Is my behavior being driven by fear or is it being driven by, oh, wow, like that resonates. And I think that could be helpful for me here. I wanted to, I want to give you a really concrete example of how this can really spin into a lot of misinformation. And this is on the topic of time out and how uh, neuroscience information was really um, misrepresented. Um, there was an article in, I think it was 2014 in, in Time Magazine that was said, Time Out is damaging your child. That's the title of it, right? Something like that. And, um, and the case against Time Out was that isolation may, isolation causes similar brain activation as physical pain. And so therefore we shouldn't use Time Out as a discipline strategy. So if you actually clicked on the link, which I'm sure most people didn't actually click on the, the link embedded in that, you know, study to the uh, study that they cited for the fact that isolation leads to these brain activation patterns, um, you would find that this study was on college students and that it was a neuroscience study on college students playing a video game. And they played this video game where they had they were a character and their character was like in a ball game and their character gets left out of a ball game. And brain activation patterns, there was some brain activation in a brain region that also gets activated with physical pain. Okay, super interesting study, right? Like that's fascinating. I mean, college students, we know like the social environment is so important, right? Like an 18 year old, what's more important to them than fitting in. Okay. I, I could get down with how powerful isolation might be, especially from their peers, right? That has nothing to do with timeout in the context of a, a three-year-old in a loving family that's utilizing primarily positive parenting strategies and then uses a, you know, a two-minute break for misbehavior that's used sparingly and appropriately in the, the context of, you know, evidence-based positive parenting. Those are two very different things, but yet now we have all these people just reading this headline and then thinking that neuroscience, I actually, I actually asked, called out a pretty high-level influencer who said, you know, there's brain scan research on timeout showing it's damaging. And, and it was from this research and she, she didn't do her work to like, dig in and see that, that that's not, and again, I don't care if people use timeout or don't use timeout. Like, like, I think it's important to know what the research shows on timeout. So a family can understand, Hey, would, would a two minute break be helpful for my toddler or not? I mean, that, that's, that I think is a reasonable question for a parent to ask. And I've got all the research if a, if a parent wants to know about timeout. And if, if that's something they want to add to their toolbox, but the, the level of misinformation now about timeout is profound um, and, and where this is kind of, I want to wrap this up is that a recent study meta-analysis in 2022, um, on this particular parenting program that was developed by an attachment researcher includes timeout and 25 trials of this parenting program. It includes other skills too, like, you know, increasing responsivity to emotions, um, ignoring minor misbehavior, positive reinforcement for appropriate behavior on 2,000 kids and families. Um, they've now studied it on them, and it has been shown to improve attachment security, this intervention. This very, using these very strategies that have now been taken away from parents because of fear. Mm -hmm. And this is this, this program was developed by 
Um, uh, Dr. Van Asenhorn, who is one of the most top studied scientists in all of psychology, particularly in attachment, and his own intervention includes some of these strategies that are being kind of vilified on social media. And I think that's where the concern is, is that then parents resort to more coercive type of approaches because they're afraid, right? And then they end up doing the very things that they are adamantly against, like yelling and like we even had a, you know, a mom like kind of like shake her kids' shoulders because she was so frustrated because she was connecting and connecting and connecting and, and then she explodes, right? And so I think this is where our concern is with some of the misinformation that floats around. Yes. Well, we might um, be like doing the opposite of what we intend, which is to help kids and families. Yes. And as, as you know, currently I'm on an Instagram hiatus and a lot of that comes from just the exhaustion that comes from being on Instagram as a business owner. And as you and I said, before we started chatting here that like, I'm not like the normal account, (laughs) the everyday person who's like following friends and relatives and a few parenting accounts every now and then, and maybe a couple influencers, like pretty much all that I follow are other businesses that I'm, I'm trying to, you know, collaborate with and talk with and have relationships with. And I do feel like there's like information overload. And so having that filter of, is it empowering me or is it fear-based is something that as I come back in July, I need to carry that filter with me because, um, it's true for, for, professional and for parenting as well. And I, I, I think that I kind of needed to hear that filter. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, research shows that, that social media can be beneficial for us, but it can also be harmful for our mental health and it depends on how we're consuming it. So I think finding accounts that you trust and then minimizing how many accounts that we follow in various fields, right? Like if I'm following, and this is true, not even just uh, with parenting. <laughs> I was telling oh, yeah. Becca earlier, I'm remodeling my kitchen. And so I started, or I'm going to be, and so I started following some uh, interior design accounts. And at, for a while, it was really helpful, but then it, it started to feel overwhelming because I felt like I was second guessing myself at every turn. And they were all these different styles. And it, it it wasn't helpful for my mental space because I was obsessing over the color of my cabinet hardware, which is just not not worth my mental, you know, <laughs> I <can't laughs> yes. spending my time thinking about that that much. Um, but because I had put so much of that in front of my face, it made that, you know, it almost created that anxiety for me. So yes, but it is helpful to get some inspiration from some of those things. So it's not that I have to follow, unfollow every interior design account, but, you know, maybe following three that I find really in line with my style and my, um, you know, my budget <laughs> is probably more helpful than following 30 accounts with a variety of different uh, aesthetics. And yes. I think the same can go for sleep or parenting or feeding. Like who are the, the three or four uh, people that I really trust and, you know, that I feel like their information is not shaming. It feels empowering. It feels uh, concrete. And I feel like I'm really getting some some tools that I can add to my toolbox and then maybe trying to tune out some of the other, the noise that comes up. Because, you know, your kitchen is not going to be extra beautiful because you followed 50 accounts versus five accounts. It's like, no, it's, and my kid, it's not going to be a 
better or worse picky eater because I followed 20 accounts instead of two accounts. Like that's not the measure of your parenting success is how much information you're taking in. It's that empowering versus fear-based. Is this something that's helpful or is it something that's making me feel like an even worse parent? Um, And so that's so good to just remember to be mindful about. And I appreciate that. Yeah. And I mean, we're all susceptible to it. Even, you know, I've, I've read hundreds of articles and parenting books and uh, I, you know, I've, I've led parenting groups and I still will read things and be like, Oh, like, wait, am I being un- too ungentle with my approach here? Or am I, you know? And so, you know, I think being aware of our thoughts around, you know, when we see these things and recognizing too, that our kids we can't create a, a perfect little robot no matter what. And, and I think sometimes with all the parenting information, it can be like, oh, I got to address every single tantrum and every single time my child does this. And sometimes just giving ourselves enough grace and our kids enough grace to um, just be in relationships sometimes instead of, and this is actually a reminder to myself that, it, it you know, I'm not trying to always fix problems and to just, um, yeah, to just, just let some of it go a little bit and enjoy it. Yes. I I think that's definitely the, the truth about a lot of what we consume and what we do is that we kind of forget the enjoyment factor of that. And we get a little too wrapped up in things. I would love just as we kind of close this out, I want to go back to the very first thing that I asked you, which is, can you share with us just one more time? What is that research-based definition of positive parenting? Yes. Um, so research-based definition of positive parenting um, is a, a parenting approach that combines high levels of warmth. Um, and that includes things like empathy, validation, connection, showing interest in your child with high levels of limit setting. Um, and, you know, just a couple of points there, uh, the limit setting, we do want to avoid a physical discipline such as uh, spanking um, or chronic yelling and really look to more like natural and logical consequences, which may include something like a brief break from an interaction uh, when setting limits. So that would be an evidence-based definition of positive parenting. Well, thank you for being here with us. And I would love for you to share more. You kind of hinted towards like, you have a toddler course and things like that. So if people want yeah. more from Helping Families Thrive, where can they go? Yeah, so you can find us on Instagram at Helping Families Thrive or our website, uh, helpingfamiliesthrive.com. And all of our, we have a parenting course as well as a couple of mini courses and workshops. And our mission is to really take um, evidence-based programs and modernize this, the presentation of them. So we're not making up any of our stuff. What we're doing is really looking at, in our parenting course, we surveyed all the, the most studied, most effective parenting courses. We looked at all the skills that they taught, and then we teach those to parents in an online format with video examples. And that's what we do for our anxiety course as well and our toddler course. So we're really just sharing with the research um, the most effective parenting tools from the research um, in online formats. Well, thank you for providing real tangible ways for us to think through how we handle social media, how we're thinking through positive parenting, all the resources you guys have. So thank you. Yes, thank you, Becca. 
As always, everything that we talked about today, courses, links, mentions to other podcast episodes that Dr. Jenna has joined me on, those are all in the notes. So check those out. But here is something I need you to do. Would you please in your podcast player rate and review this podcast? I am thrilled that we are number three rated of all top 20 podcasts by Feedspot has rated us as the number three pediatric podcast in the world. And that is a huge honor. That's only possible because you guys show up here every single week to listen and to learn and to share and connect. So if you could just take a quick moment, tell us where you are, what you love about this podcast in the reviews below. Hint, hint, wink, wink, five-star tap, please. And I am grateful for you guys being here each and every week as we continue to help you make getting sleep help easy. All right, sweet dreams. See you next time.